This is Strange Assembly episode 254, Reindeer Games. I'm Chris Stevenson, and you're listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there or in the Apple Podcast app or wherever else it is that you access podcasts. You can find us on the usual social media. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly, at strangeassembly on Twitter and strangeassembly on Instagram. And of course, if you want to be our bestest friends, you can find us at patreon.com slash strangeassembly. I'm here today not to talk about games about Christmas, but rather games that I played over this holiday season. For your reference, this involved a visit to a couple of different groups of friends and family, so we're going to have a wide range of ages and audiences that are covered by the games that I played this holiday season. And first up is one that I'm not going to spend a lot lot of time on because If you're listening to a gaming podcast, you probably already know what it is, and that's Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride remains my go-to game to introduce people to the wonders of hobby board gaming or strategy board gaming or designer board gaming or whatever it is that you want to call it. And my first stop on my holiday tour was a family whom I had previously infected with the board gaming disease. And so we played a couple of games of the copy of Ticket to Ride that they still had around. I think that that's probably their favorite one. They have some more complicated ones now, but we uh, we played that a few times. Had a a very ecstatic teenager at thrashing me in this game of of Ticket to Ride. I really got destroyed, and I was in second place. She was she really crushed the rest of us. If you have never played Ticket to Ride, it's very straightforward. You have a map. It's the United States in the base game. You have colors of your trains, and then you have these cards that you're picking up that are of different colors. And you play cards that match the color of the tracks on the board, and then you play out your trains on those, and you're trying to connect certain cities. But every turn is very straightforward because on any given turn, it's either pick up a pair of cards or put down cards, and that's basically it. You can also get some extra tickets if you feel like adding those on. Always worth checking out if you haven't done that or if you're, you've got someone that you're trying to get into the hobby. The second game that we played was one that I had gotten as a Christmas present, I guess, from Wizards of the Coast. We got this email saying, Hey, we'd like to give you a pr- Christmas present, and it's going to be a surprise, but P.S., what's your t-shirt size? So, <laughs> I got the a Stream of Many Eyes t-shirt and the Dungeon Mayhem, which is a very small little card game. It's uh, four 28-card decks, and each deck represents a specific adventurer, because this is a Dungeons & Dragons-themed card game. Uh, One is a barbarian, one is a paladin, one is a wizard, one is a rogue. And I'll make a comparison to Munchkin because it's in that sort of mindset, right? You know how Munchkin is kicking the door, defeat the monsters, grab the loot, stab your buddies? 
This simplifies it down to just stab your buddies. It's just the four adventurers trying to take each other out. If you want to win, my first strategic advice would be to not play against a group of kids who make it their immediate objective to eliminate you first, because you really don't have any way to stop that. It's that kind of game. It is a, a straightforward draw a card, play a card by default sort of system. Your cards do damage, or heal you, or set up a defense, or draw a card, or let you take another action. Those are the five things that the basic cards do. They don't even have to have text on them. They've just got the symbols in the upper left corner. So this was readily playable by somebody as young as eight without any problems whatsoever. They all did very well with the fact that they were getting attacked and people were not getting upset. The very youngest needed a little of assistance with the special cards in the deck, which actually have some text on them. So the wizard, for example, has a fireball that deals three damage to everyone, including himself, because that's what happens when you set a fireball off in a small room. The rogue had lots of cards that, you know, it was like one dagger, two daggers, too many daggers. The barbarian tended to do big wallops of damage while the paladin was the best at shielding and healing. So uh, there's some flavor in there from those character classes. I just played that with the younger crowd. I didn't play that with any grown-ups. Obviously, this is a game that is aimed at very casual play. I'd probably say the games are going to be over in 15 minutes or less, generally. So it went over well for that sort of mindset. Later in my trip, I played actual Dungeons & Dragons because one of my nieces has gotten interested in Dungeons & Dragons. So I was asked to run a game for the group. And this is the, the youngest group of people I have ever played a game of Dungeons & Dragons with. So it was my, my brother, so the only other actual grown-up. And then um, I believe an, an eight-year-old, an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, a six-year-old, so and a five-year-old. Uh, now, a couple of these I knew would vacate pretty immediately because they were trying to aim for something resembling real D&D and not, you know, no thank you evil, which is probably a better go-to role-playing game if you're going to be trying to play with, you know, a six-year-old. But since we were aiming for, for actual D&D here, I actually bypassed Lost Mine of Fandelver and went to Tales of the Yawning Portal and pulled out the first level of Sunless Citadel because that was the sort of introductory game for 3rd edition. And I hadn't played it yet as 5th edition and I didn't really want to run Fandelver again because... Whatever, you know, you can get bored. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was playing this with a challenging group of players in a challenging environment around the holidays where there's other people coming and going. We got most of the first level done over a couple of days of play. You know, we had to pick the entire game up and put it away to have dinner at one point and then get it back out another day. But for the, the I guess I'll say the core group of players, which is the two eight-year-olds, and my brother, and so you've got the uh, you've got my eight-year-old, who's unsurprisingly 
played a, a whole bunch of games already and has indeed previously played sort of played Pathfinder and actually played No Thank You Evil and sort of played D&D before. And then, you know, my brother and then my cousin, and this was her first time playing, which is a very bright eight-year-old with a, a, a healthy amount of focus. So we didn't quite get the first level of that dungeon done, but I was I was happy that had I ended up with players who were trying to get me to set back up a section of the map so that they could, you know, finish one more room on the last day that we were there. One thing that I, I did do different that I wouldn't normally do, because right, you have to modify some things for an eight-year-old, is I, I actually went and went to uh, Mike Schley's website, who is the fellow who did the cartography, or at least, I don't know if he did all of it. It may have been all of it, but uh, at least most of it, it wasn't all of it, of the cartography in Tales for the Yawning Portal. I knew I needed to keep tension, attention span. There was no way I was going to make these kids try to draw their own maps. And even them sitting around waiting for me to draw maps was probably going to go badly. So I went and downloaded the PDF files. I purchased and downloaded the PDF files. They were very reasonably priced for the maps for Sunless Citadel, or uh, not that I needed the second level. But I downloaded that map and I resized it properly and then printed the thing out. So the whole map when to scale on, you know, one inch equals five feet was, I think, 35 pieces of paper, which is more than you're ever going to be able to put out at any one point in time. But it really let things go faster whenever anybody was getting to a new room. I could just drop that out. They're little kids, so I'm relying on them not too much meddling on the fact that you can see a little bit of what the rooms are around it when you're adding. But I think that that went really well. So I thought that that was a pretty appealing alternative to to hand-drawing maps or, I don't know, I think, I feel like it's been a while since I've played where the player characters were actually required to draw out their own maps. Although I remember cartography being a vital skill playing Dungeons & Dragons when I was younger. I don't know, so that game number three, Dungeons & Dragons... A fourth game that was played over holiday break was Unlock the Adventurers of Oz. I've talked on this podcast before about escape room games. Unlock is one of those series of escape room games, as you might guess from the title. Thematically, while they have the same mechanics, they've thematically moved away from things always being an escape of some sort, even, you know, much less an escape from a particular room. In this case, Unlock the Adventurers of Oz is essentially the story of the Wizard of Oz. You start off with the tornado, and then you get tossed into Oz, and you have to make your way around Oz, solving the puzzles, defeating wicked witches and such, uh, and then try to, you know, uh, you know, figure out where you're going. It was a, a little interesting uh, in that the box and the rules said 60 minutes, but when you the, uh, unlock is one that requires the use of an app, and when you pull up the app, it goes 90 minutes. I'm like, huh. Well, it turns out that, yeah, it's really a 90-minute game. So we made it in the 90 minutes, but just barely. I could not fathom having actually beaten it in 60 minutes. You'd have to just not stop for anything. It was fun. Uh, we played this one not with kids, but with my spouse and siblings and, and spouses. I don't think this was a group that particularly got 
much or not that much. You don't care that much one way or the other about the Oz theme. Obviously, that's an enhancement if you do it. The Unlock series of games is very focused usually on looking at the cards and trying to spot things on the cards. That's a relatively large aspect of those compared to some of the other escape room games. Partially that's because the Unlock series are non-destructible. You can play an Unlock game and then you can take it and put it back in the box and it is perfectly ready for you to play again sometime in the future when you've forgotten everything or more likely for you to gift or trade it on to someone else without having to you know, go through the rigmarole of trying to figure out how you can reassemble it or whether or not you really need to destroy those destructible components. And I also think that this one was one of the more creative unlock games that I've played. I haven't, I haven't played all of them, but it was one of the more creative unlock games as far as how you had to examine the components and how they interacted with each other. So that was Unlock the Adventurers of Oz. A completely different game that I played with a completely different crowd was Axis and Allies and Zombies. Now, I had received Axis and Allies and Zombies before the holiday season, and I'd played it with the aforementioned eight-year-old, but, you know, that's not quite the same thing as a standard playthrough. And so what I, I wanted to do, and I was able to do, was when I was back visiting family uh, around the holidays, I was able to get together with folks from high school, and that is uh, relevant for this particular game because I played a lot of Axis and Allies in high school. And so I thought that would be a, a great way to go back and play Axis and Allies and Zombies. If you have not played Axis and Allies before, it is a historical World War II game. The board game has been around since 1981. There's the standard line of the game that has gone through a number of iterations and refinements, and that's just the you can play it two-player, where one side is the Axis and the other side is the Allies. You can play it up to five-player, where you're then breaking down individual countries within the Axis or the, or the, the Alliance. So with five players, you have Russia, the United Kingdom, the United States, Germany, and Japan as separate playable countries. It's a, it is totally a dudes-on-a-map game, right? You have infantry, and you have tanks, and you have battleships, and you have aircraft carriers and you're trying to move around, and you're taking territory, and you're fighting battles, and there is strategic production, but it's, it's really just a straightforward, okay, I have some money, how am I going to spend it? And which particular units am I going to buy? And then I have those to defend myself and to attack on the following turn. So there's, there is a strategic element of it, but it's not just tactical combat, but it's not a game where there's a lot of complexity in how you go about producing units. If you want to check out the sort of details of how, other than the obvious one, how Axis and Allies is different from Axis and Allies Zombies, you can check out the written review on strangeassembly.com. But for these purposes, let me note the obvious that there are zombies in Axis and Allies and Zombies. This is a fantastical alternate history where, hey, it's World War II, but there's also a zombie plague going around. And so every time an infantry unit dies, it comes back as a zombie. And at the start of every turn, there is a card that flips up that at, the, at a minimum puts a zombie somewhere out on the board. 
it is possible for the zombies to win, because if zombies are the only pieces left in a territory, they will take that territory over. And kind of like the Axis are able to do in base Axis and Allies, the zombies can do here. If at the end of a turn cycle they control enough production worth of territory, they just win. Now, how much of a threat you want the zombies to be uh, is up to you, really, because you can play with just the normal zombie adding effects, but that is the Desperate Times half of the card. You can optionally play with the Desperate Measures as well, which every turn will give players bonuses to either make it easier to kill zombies or give bonuses for killing zombies or get a technology that gives you a permanent zombie killing bonus, which unsurprisingly, since these are all anti-zombie measures or measures that encourage the player to go actively go out and kill zombies, this drastically reduces, if not eliminates, the possibility that the zombies are going to win. But the zombies do still influence play, and on a very basic level, they just can clog things up. Every time there's a battle and there are zombies in the territory, there's you know, zombies around and they might kill the attacker and they might kill the defender, but they're much more likely to kill the attacker. And so you actually have some strategic things you can try to do with zombies. You may choose to buy a bunch of infantry expecting to be attacked and expecting to lose, knowing that you're going to leave a pile of zombies in what is now going to be this territory that was just taken, and as long as your opponent holds that territory and has units there, there's a chance that the zombies will attrit them every turn. You may attack into a place expecting to kill a bunch of infantry and create a bunch of zombies and then pull back and just leave the zombies in there. But it, it really lets you change the math of exactly how you want to buy do you really want to buy infinite infantry? I don't know. Artillery is around, so all pretty much all of the changes and innovations that have been made in Axis and Allies, the core game over the years, uh, are added into Axis and Allies zombies, like two-hit battleships. But it, it at the core, it very much feels like Axis and Allies, but it also does feel distinctive because of the zombie thing. That's not just a little piece thrown in that doesn't really change up much about the game. So if you like Axis and Allies, then I think you will like Axis and Allies and Zombies. And so it it gives you a different way to play that game. It also comes in at a at a pretty low price point. Axis and Allies has there there's like the I think it's Axis and Allies 1941, which is like a thirty dollar introduction. It's not it's not really an introductory version of the game. It's it's the game, but there are a few of the more complicated bits shaved off. And then, you know, you can get like a $70, $80 version of the game, or, or heck, there's I think there's a $100 anniversary edition of the game if you want to. Axis and Allies and Zombies comes in on the lower end of that, so the MSRP is 40 You can obviously get it for less than that on Amazon. There are some consequences to that. Because it's a $40 price point instead of a $70 or $80 price point, there aren't quite as many minis in the game as we would have liked, so it was always a struggle to try to like shift the pieces around and use the chips that let you mark that something is three or five pieces instead of one, and actually have a way to fit everything on the board. But that was really the, the only downside to the game. So that was Axis and Allies and Zombies from Avalon Hill, 
which is a subsidiary, part of Wizards of the Coast at this point. Now that's the last gamer game, uh, as my, one might say, as I, I went to play, because I actually did not bring a giant stash of games for adults to play. Uh, apparently I should have brought more. I know in years past I've, I've had way more than I needed, and apparently I went too far in the other direction this time. So the final two games that I played over the holiday season were party games, uh, and one of them was Balderdash. And Balderdash is a game that I own and has always actually been a wordplay party game that I like, but it turns out that they've actually expanded, I guess would be the right word, Balderdash. So Balderdash used to be just a a dictionary-related game. You would have a judge, and that judge would look at a card, and it would have a real word, but a super obscure one. You would say what the word is, and the card would tell you what the definition is. Then each of the other players would have to make up a definition for that word. At the end, the judge for the round would read all of the submissions as well as the real one, and then all of the other players would guess which one they thought the real definition was. You get points if you pick out the real definition. You get points if other people pick your fake definition. In this version of Balderdash, they still have the wordplay category, but there are similar ones with quote-unquote famous people. So, you know, real people who did some real thing, but who you've never heard of, and goofy laws, and movies. And so, right, for the famous people, you're trying to come up with what it was that this person did that made them famous. And for the law, it's trying to identify what the crazy law is. Oh, you know... New Jersey has a law about surfing blank. Okay, what what is it that, you know, the law is surfing about? With the movies, you are coming up with the plot of the movie, or, you know, uh, the little, what's the little, you know, one-sentence summary of what the plot was based on, on the title. And I, I still think that this is a, a funny game. I still like these sort of group voting things, uh, so we had a really good time with that. And that's Balderdash. The final game I played, another party game. But this one has a bit of a variation where, again, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I am not a big fan of this particular way of scoring. And the game is, what do you meme? And this is another one of these games that is based on the apples-to-apples scoring system, where like in Balderdash, like I was just saying, you you have a judge, but everyone is, the judge has one card, and everyone is trying to submit a card that the judge will then think is the funniest in association with what they have. And I'll tell you, in no small part, I'm not a big fan of these games, because I am atrocious at them. I am atrocious. I, I always approach these games in way too logical a way, like it should be something that is you know, associated with the things would actually make sense in a funny sort of way. And then, you know, you end up playing these games where really it's about knowing what it is that the particular player who is the judge will think is funny that really doesn't have anything to do with what the card was that they put out, just something else. So what do you mean is different from apples to apples in two ways? And the first is that 
in the same way that Cards Against Humanity is different from Apples to Apples, where it is a deliberately adult game, right? So this has, I, I don't, it does not, it does not go as far as Cards Against Humanity does, but it has lots and lots of vulgarity and sexual situ, uh, you know, discussion and bodily humor and any sort of thing that is it's not going out of its way to be offensive in, say, a racial way, like Cards Against Humanity might do, but it is vulgar, and so if you're not a fan of that, that's going to be a strike against what do you meme. The other way that it's different, the way that makes it a meme thing, is that the thing that the judge is using is not a card out of a deck with the word on it or something like that, or or a question that someone is answering, it is a picture instead. And so the idea is that this is a picture and you are supposed to be picking the card that has a phrase that would be the best caption for this picture as a meme. So that's the shtick. I think at one point in time it was labeled as like a game for millennials and then they realized that actually everyone in the universe looks at memes everywhere. Just go on Facebook. So it expanded beyond that. But for me, it just cannot get past my inherent dislike of that apples to apples mechanic where it just does not work for me. Now, it it does give you the adult setting, which is neither good nor bad, but you know, that's going to depend on what your preference is. It, like I said, it, it seemed to be less deliberately offensive than Cards Against Humanity was, so it's not playing, I don't think, in exactly the same space, but since I really have no interest in playing Cards Against Humanity again, and I only played this once, I can't give you something definitive about that. So that, my, my final entry for this episode is What Do You Meme? So those are the games that I played for the 2018 holiday season. I hope that all of you out there were able to have some fun times playing with your family back home or the family that came and visit or the friends you've chosen in place of family or however it is that you choose to spend this season. I hope that you were able to follow our motto of never stop gaming. We'll be back next week with some... Dungeons and Dragons discussion. You have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, the Apple Podcasts app, the Google Play Music Store, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere fine podcasts are sold. You can find us on the usual social media. We're Strange Assembly on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Very simple. Strange Assembly, one word. You can also reach me directly. I love to hear your comments, criticisms, feedback, whatever you got. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs>